I'm Congressman Bruce Westerman, and this is Conserve Nation. Join me as we get back to our roots, being good stewards of what we have for a brighter tomorrow. Welcome to our podcast. It's great to uh, have some experts with me today, and uh, we've got the uh, chairman and vice chairman in government relations with the IPAA. And uh, Jim, start off, tell us a little bit about you, yourself, your experience. Now, how long have you been in the, the energy business? Because uh, energy is a hot topic today. It is, and, and I went to Texas A&M, graduated in 1978 with a degree in petroleum engineering. I've been in the, in the industry ever since. Uh, we have a private company in Fort Worth called Texland Petroleum. We uh, have about a thousand wells. We directly employ 75 people, but we probably have several hundred additional people that are actually doing the work for us in the field. We uh, uh, primarily in the Permian Basin of West Texas and Southeast New Mexico is where we operate. Great. Thank, thank you for being with us. How's business these days? Well, the price is great, but actually conducting business is pretty difficult right now with supply chain issues and labor shortages and so forth. Yeah. And Steve? So I'm Steve Pruitt, uh, founder and CEO of Elevation Resources. We're private and institutionally owned by pension funds and endowments and teachers retirement funds and all things. But I've invested most of my wealth in the company over the last nine years in developing uh, the wildcat discovery we made in West Texas and uh, turning it into cash flow and ultimately quickly return to our investors, which include these endowments and pensions. Uh, like Jim, our uh, ability to do business and grow has been hampered by a shortage of uh, steel, in particular tubulars as we call it, which case the wells, and secondly labor. Uh, some of the federal incentives to not work have hurt labor participation and we've not been able to get all the workers that we had back in the boom of 2014 uh, that were released during the COVID pandemic and negative oil prices and negative natural gas prices haven't come back to the industry because they have had economic incentives to stay home. So those are limiting our ability to uh, increase the rig count and bring more production online. Great. And Mallory? Mallory Miller, uh, Vice President of Government Relations with Independent Petroleum Association of America. We represent about 6,500 members that operate in 34 states and offshore. Um, so our companies are really smaller independents, uh, so they're not integrated companies. So we really are just focused on the upstream sector of the industry. And we've got two of our finest here today. So thank right. you for having us. Now I'm sure you live here in the D.C. area, but where's home for you? Colorado. Yeah, yeah Colorado is home. A lot of energy development in Colorado these days. There it is, yes, <clears throat> absolutely. So we've got Texas A&M, Texas, and the University of Arkansas. It's like the old Southwest. <laughs> <laughs> we're about to have the reunion in the SEC. Uh, we are. We yeah. definitely are. Yeah. Um, we're waiting for the Longhorns. <laughs> well, you, you never know. I saw them. They posted where they had. Uh, their record against all SEC teams of all time, and, and they, I think they've got a winning record against everybody, but maybe Vanderbilt or something. But uh, kind of odd. Might have been Mississippi State. They hadn't played them too many times. So, uh, well, thank you all for being here. Obviously, energy is a very hot topic today. Uh, it's uh, it's on everyone's mind. Uh, we've we're seeing increasing prices, but we were seeing increasing prices. Uh, really ever since the Biden administration 
um, came on board. The Putin's actions in Ukraine have uh, kind of put that on steroids, and we're uh, seeing huge spikes in prices. And there's this common misconception in us, you know, being engineers, we understand what it takes to build something, all the planning, uh, everything that can go wrong in doing a project. I think the general public forgets that there's a lot of risk when you do a project. People invest capital and uh, it doesn't just happen overnight, but the administration that has been so opposed to um, especially fossil fuels, it's really, I think, been an all-out attack on domestic energy. But they come out now and act like, well, uh, oil industry, just open the valve. Give us some more oil. We need more oil. We need more gas. And we know it's, it's obviously not that easy. One of the things that really shocked me is when the president's spokesperson came out and started talking about these thousands and thousands of permits and really tried to take blame and shift it to the industry. Set the record straight on, was it 9,000 or 14,000 permits they claim? 9,000. And you know, they leave out the fact that they have not approved a single lease onshore or offshore since Biden was sworn into office. Yes. So where's the where's the disconnect there? Yeah. On on uh, you know with regard to permits, I think one misconception is that well you get a permit you're going to be drilling tomorrow. No, that's that's definitely not the case because it takes a lot more than permit. A lot of times you have to put uh, other regulatory uh, units together. You have you have to have right away to get your product to the market, and then. There's a, a list of uh, that our engineers have about 25 different products and services that we must have before we can go drill a well. And uh, all of those things, uh, many of those things are in short supply. And Steve mentioned the tubulars, uh, uh, which are an absolute necessity. Uh, we were told earlier this year, uh, just a month or so ago, that if we wanted to drill in the fourth quarter, they might be able to get us pipe. They couldn't tell us what the price would be, and it was probably going to be foreign steel from South Korea or Canada. Mm -hmm. Can't even, and they said that the, these are pipe vendors said we uh, can't get enough labor to add shifts to our production here in the U.S. so that we could go 24/7 with our mills. Right, and you know, labor has been. Uh, a huge problem in all sectors. Yes. I've, I've done a lot of tours across my district and whether it's agriculture, manufacturing, uh, trucking, everybody I talk to is having labor issues. Now I, I've got some well service companies in my district and I've talked to folks in that business and still their main problems like you said are, are tubular products and labor. Mm -hmm. uh, on, on top of when you start talking about developing on federal lands, you've got the federal bureaucracy at play. So, uh, you know, I think the uh, energy sector has been given a really unfair shake by this administration, which started out with a open attack on U.S. energy production, and all of a sudden now they, they need you, and instead of trying to figure out how to help, they want to place the blame on you for the problems that they've, they've created. Uh, you all are engineers, you know uh, the problem solving method. You define the problem, you come up with a plan, you do the work, and 
you present the answer. Well, that's the process that we're trying to do is you know figure out what is the real problem here. How do we assist uh, a sector of our economy that we greatly need at this time, and we will need well into the future. Uh, so, what is a if you could say one thing or two things that you think Congress could do to help us get more domestic energy production? What what would be your top two, Steve? You want to start? First would be pipeline and export terminal permitting. Uh, the FERC's recent ruling, which they have stepped back from, was a, a shadow over the LNG export business, which our president just committed to more exports to Europe, but without talking to anyone about where that supply is coming from and how it's going to get there. The LNG terminals are financed by long-term contracts, and so most of the gas that's leaving this country, 11, 12 BC, at billion cubic feet a day, is already under long-term contracts, much of which goes to Asia. And a LNG project is a three to five year timeline. And while the FERC may have stepped back thanks to some pressure from the Senate and on their ruling, which required some regulatory or scope three emissions reporting and things that aren't even quantifiable, the regulatory uncertainty remains such that investors are unwilling to commit to these long term projects with an administration that's been so hostile to development of domestic energy resources. So it's a very hollow. Um, statement to say I haven't done anything to block uh, increasing oil production. In fact, it's gone up under my administration. Wants no credit to this president because in every step, whether it was capital formation or statements uh, that I'm going to reduce uh, oil and gas production to combat climate change, to no leasing of federal lands, at every turn, investors and thus people like us that are putting our money alongside the investors are discouraged from making what are 50-year investment decisions. So one would be the regulatory burden uh, around pipelines and export facilities, and especially LNG, but also continued oil exports, uh, enables us to have certainty that our product can get to market and not have negative oil prices, negative gas prices like we suffered in 2020. And the second is the import quotas on foreign steel is, is harmful to our getting the tubular products that we need that are upgraded in the U.S. It's actually costing us jobs because we can't deploy the rigs. The mills that upgrade and transport the product that's tubulars to us don't have the product uh, to deliver to us. So that we can't contract a rig if we don't have certainty that we're going to get the steel when we need it to put in the ground mm -hmm. to put that well on production. Yeah. I would say from my perspective, from a federal lands perspective, um, I think the biggest issue that we are dealing with is uncertainty in, in um, you know, for our member companies. And thank you to you, uh, today actually you're dropping uh, the suite of six bills that go a long way um, to help provide certainty for members. And I think those ideas really are where we should start. The administration needs to get back to quarterly lease sales onshore. They need to do a five-year plan. The five-year plan, the current five-year plan is going to expire in June, and after that, you know, there's nothing planned. And that the five-year plan takes a lot of time and planning to get through. It's one of the longest regulatory um, comment periods that they have because there are several iterations. And we believe that process is good, but they needed to start it a long time. Right. So. Yeah, we're working on the, I guess, at the end of the Obama plan that was put in place. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, we live, we're in a city right here that likes to talk in headlines and memes, but when you start digging into this, it's a very complicated issue when you're looking at 
energy production in this country. And I just can't stress enough how I think people don't appreciate everything that goes into uh, there being gas at the pump, mm -hmm. so the lights coming on when you, when you hit the switch. Uh, and also the tremendous opportunity that we have because we're blessed with so many resources. And I'm, I'm glad that you pointed out about pipelines. Uh, you know, the Keystone XL pipeline's been in the news a lot. It's not just that pipeline that's been attacked by this administration. Uh, you know, I think people are shocked to find that we were importing so much Russian energy. Mm. You know, one of the big areas of that is New England. Uh, liquefied gas coming in from Russia to Boston. And you have to ask yourself, wait, isn't there something called the Marcellus Shell in Pennsylvania right. that's not too far from Boston? Right. Why are we having to bring it across the ocean on a Russian tanker? Well, it's because we can't put a pipeline uh, through New York to get exactly. it to, to New England. We still have heating oil, trucks delivering heating oil to Boston and Manhattan, and that's a crime. We have plenty of gas in Pennsylvania and West Virginia to supply New England, but because of the pipeline prohibition across New York, it can't happen. And, and there was a pipeline to go across New Jersey to Maryland that got killed too after seven years of effort to get it built. Exactly. And you know, it costs money to to do the permitting, to build the projects, and at some point I think the investors are going to say, you know, we're not gonna be involved in this anymore. It's and if there's a project that involves the federal bureaucracy, let's go invest our money somewhere else. So it's a, it's a dangerous precedent we're setting up for the future. And it's not just oil and gas, it's mining. It's every kind of resource that we extract here in the U.S. Somebody has figured a way to put up an obstacle to make it hard to do, which makes no sense at all because we could be growing our economy and we could be helping the environment at the same time because we do it better and safer and cleaner here in the U.S. than, than anywhere else. What we see is the environmental uh, activist firms are helping draft legislation from the Democratic Party. We see that in the language and the complexity and uh, the vagueness of it. And that, that's not a way to stimulate the economy and grow jobs in this country is to have environmental firms directing legislation that affects manufacturing in this country. Yeah, so the, the name of this podcast is, is Conservation, and it's a play on words of conservation from a national perspective. And I'm, I would consider myself as big a conservationist as there is anywhere, but conservation means using your resources and using them wisely. And what we're doing is not a wise use of resources, especially when we're shutting down and putting obstacles in the way of using domestic resources that not only can be produced more efficiently and cleaner than any place else in the world, but also can create jobs in rural communities and create wealth here in the United States. Uh, so I don't think the general public understands that concept as well as, as they should. We've got to get that message out. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the light is shining on it though. It is. And, you know, one of the biggest things we need is capital, mm -hmm. you know, in our industry because it's so capital intensive. And uh, so when you look at, at uh, what a lot of the financial institutions are doing in the United States, they are, uh, you know, coming out against our industry and investing in our industry. And so then you get down to just internally generated capital. 
is all you can rely on. Yeah. And many of the banks have pulled back on lending to our industry. So we're seeing this uh, unholy matrimony between uh, Wall Street and government. Correct. And you've seen the what the SEC put out about your uh, your carbon impact. Uh, you're seeing you know huge firms like BlackRock and Larry Fink, and they're pushing an agenda that's hurting the the American consumer, that's hurting our, our country. And that's where I think Congress has to step in and say, uh, enough's enough. These these bureaucratic um, relationships with these Wall Street investors and the woke ESG crowd, uh, somebody's got to stand up and push back against that because it's hurting the everyday American when it happens. And they're, they're taking people's retirement accounts the, the very people they're hurting, they're using the money that they're investing in their retirement accounts to do things that hurt their way of life. So it's, it's an education process and we've got to call out where the, where the problems are and, and I think as Congress we've got to have the backbone to fix that. Absolutely. We see it even in major oil companies where uh, they're being pressured you know, not to produce energy. And it's it's uh, upside down and backwards from the way uh, our country should be operating. Just to have a mandate uh, of, of you know, bulge bracket banks or money center banks to, that all borrowers must be carbon neutral by X date, that's an impossibility. Are we asking consumers to quit driving their cars? And we can't have every car in the country being EV. And EVs have carbon footprints too. Exactly. And those materials that are plastics and the bearer metals that go into the batteries and no one talks about the disposal, but it's a pipe dream to think that every uh, manufacturer can become carbon neutral and to start jettisoning borrowers like us because we, there's no way we're going to be carbon neutral in any time frame is, is a very disastrous policy and an unachievable one. Yeah, so I had a, a lot of union welders that lived in my district that were working on the Keystone XL pipeline until I went and met with them, I didn't know this, but every pumping station was done with renewable energy. So to get that um, tar sands oil down to the Gulf was going to be no carbon emissions on the, the transportation of it. Now compare that to loading up uh, Russian oil or, <laughs> or liquefied natural gas yeah. and, and shipping it across the ocean. Uh, so when you talk about green jobs, that was an instance where you actually had people doing real work that were imp implementing that kind of technology. And you, you mentioned mining, and I, I have to bring this up. The same people that are trying to kill fossil fuels, and Joe Biden put it in his budget request. You know, we're not going to do anything that helps lower the price of fossil fuel energy. And they talk about electrifying and decarbonizing everything. The same people are trying to, sh not trying, they're shutting mines down in the United States. Right. So, um, twin metals mining up in northern Minnesota, large deposit of copper, nickel, cobalt, palladium, and plutonium. The Biden administration pulled the lease on it. There you could have, you could develop these minerals that you have to have to electrify. And in the the build back broke bill that uh, they tried to push through. There's actually a line item in there to shut down a copper mine in Arizona. 7,000 feet below ground could supply 20% of the U.S. demands for copper for the next 50 years, and they were going to close it down. If that bill had passed, that mine would be closed right now. 
two billion dollars had been invested in that mine. It was it was approved through a piece of legislation by John McCain and Harry Reid. Now, how can you say we're going to electrify everything and close down domestic copper mines? Uh, the way you do it is you import every bit of your raw materials from elsewhere in the world where their uh, standards are, are way less, you know, for, for so conservation, good. for emissions, yeah. uh, pollution, and everything. That's the way you do it. Countries that are hostile to us and we're having to build a fence against their aggression, thing with China. So can you see how frustrating it is for an engineer to serve in Congress? Uh, <laughs> there's probably why there are not very many engineers in Congress. <laughs> well, I, there's, there's another side of me. I went to graduate school for forestry, and I studied a lot of natural resources economics. And I guess this is old school, and maybe economics have changed since then, but there was this idea that wealth actually came from the land, and when you develop your resources, you generate wealth. So if you're, if you're importing resources, and exporting money, you're actually exporting your wealth, and you're in other countries are importing your wealth. So, uh, I think we need to get back to uh, to developing our resources, to creating American jobs, and being the leaders in conservation and in taking care of the environment. It's really a win-win. It's what everybody I think says they want and. We can't just villainize different kinds of energy. We need to be looking at innovation on how to make the kind, the energy we have the cleanest. I've always said energy should be reliable, affordable, and as clean as we can make it. Uh, China built 38 gigawatts of coal power plants last yes. year. Without our emissions technology, by the way, I'm sure. Exactly. <clears throat> so they, uh, they built coal because it's reliable and it's affordable and they don't give a rip about it being clean. We've got to come up with reliable, affordable energy and also make it clean so that developing countries, if, if you really care about the global environment, that's the approach that you take. Yeah, and reliable should be number one that's right. Right. because that people's lives depend on that. You know, we found that out in Texas yes. uh, during Snowmageddon last year. Yeah. Uh, you know, how disruptive it is uh, economically and everything to actually lose power. And, uh, and affordable is mandatory. Uh, so I think in that order, but uh, I think it's been reversed. It's uh, C has become the first thing with this administration. Uh, yeah, and then, and then a reliable and affordable is way down. Way and and it doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't work that way. We know that what will get adopted is what's reliable and what's affordable. And then the onus is on us as a society to make it as, as clean as possible. Um, we live in that environment. I mean, I live 40 minutes from my oil firm. We have oil development all around us. And we drink the subsurface water. We care about the quality of the water and the quality of our air. We're going to take care of it. And that product we make is valuable. We want it going down a pipeline and processed and consumed, not going up into the atmosphere. Exactly. Yeah, uh, if somebody thinks that the uh, energy producers are getting one over on people by flaring uh, gas, you know, it's to your financial benefit not to, uh, uh, to capture as much as that and sell it. That's, that's energy. So we'll, I'm going to do a little bit of engineering geek out here. Okay. So we know that the definition of energy is the capacity to do work. And work is 
moving an object through a distance. Now, we're using a little bit of a play on words. If we don't have energy, you can't have work. Energy is required to have work. That's from a physics standpoint. But we also know from an economic standpoint that energy powers everything. And if, if we have an energy shortage, our productivity as a country goes down. Our economy tapers off. And you have like real problems of people starving and freezing, uh, freezing mm -hmm. and you know not meeting the basic necessities of life. And Mallory, you've been been kind of quiet, probably because I've talked too much. But uh, is this kind of typical of what you're hearing from all your members? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think they provide a good cross section of, of what we're hearing, and um, you know. Back to your points, I, I think that it's just imperative that um, we get our message out there. We want to be clean. We're doing clean technologies right now, which is companies um, making sure that they're operating in the, the safest, most responsible way. Um, you know, so it, I, I don't think our industry always does a very good job of touting our wins. Um, and and what we are doing to make things more efficient and better, but we are working every day. And I think kind of the number one thing I would say um, to the administration is, you know, we want to do our part. We want to be responsible um, developers, but really just get off our backs. You know, cut the bureaucratic red tape. If it continues down this path, we're not going to see federal land production in the future because it's going to be too costly and you're not going to be able to operate in an environment where you don't know what the rules are going to be in a year or two years. So that's really um, the biggest issues that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, and I've always said federal lands are the low-hanging fruit. That's the easiest thing for a combative administration like this one mm -hmm. to go in. And, and they can find multiple ways to shut down production on federal lands, but that's not where they're going to stop. I've told my friends in the Permian, I said they may be stopping in Texas, they may be stopping production in New Mexico, but their goal is to stop it in, in Texas as well. And they'll do that through some kind of NEPA regulation, through some kind of endangered species. Yes, yes, that's yeah. a big threat. Mm -hmm. Or they will manipulate markets and manipulate investors and create so much uncertainty that it will scare people away from investing in it. So we think we know what the problems are. We've just got to work uh, much harder to, uh, to fix those problems. Jim, you got any last comments? Well, I appreciate your service to our country and, uh, you know, and, and bringing these issues to light to, uh, to the listeners of your podcast. Well, thank you for, for being on, and uh, as I say, messages from the real world. We're here inside the Beltway, and uh, I think there's unicorns and pixie dust outside, but uh, out in the real world, it doesn't always work that way. Mallory? Yeah, I just echo Jim's sentiments. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Um, you represent us very well, and we're thankful for that. Thank you. Steve? Uh, so thank you for your service, and uh, thank you for understanding the uncertainty that this administration's cast over our industry is affecting investment decisions, our ability to respond to the call to produce more oil and clean oil and natural gas in this country. Yeah. Well, again, thank you all for being on the podcast. And uh, as always, if we can ever help, don't hesitate to reach out. It's very valuable to get input, uh, again, from the real world as we face 
some of these uh, issues that we run across here in D.C. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of Concert Nation. Remember, you can find us on YouTube or Apple or Spotify podcast. Stay tuned and join us again for the next episode of Concert Nation.